Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Um, today I want to talk about um, a, a slightly less well-known period of economic crisis for Britain um, during the uh, very early 1920s. And it's referred to by economic historians as the Forgotten Depression. And it begins in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. Now, if you read um, Adam Tooze's book, uh, The Deluge, which is a brilliant, brilliant book, um, uh, and I, I really recommend it to anybody wanting to understand um, the First World War and everything really up to the start of the Great Depression. The point he makes is that from 1916 onwards, the the real world transition, uh, more significant than anything else, is the dramatic rise in economic, economic power of the United States of America and the ability of the United States of America um, to essentially finance the war. Uh, Wall Street banks, um, the, which by 1916 were being essentially underwritten by the Federal Reserve, paid for the Battle of the Somme. The, the British this had gone from being a creditor to a detonation by 1916 and certainly a considerably uh, uh, more say, great detonation by uh, 1918. Um, the war cost £3.25 billion. Pounds. Um, I'm going to come back to you with what that means in our money a little bit later on. Um, the, the British had lost three quarters of a million men, and if you factor in um, uh, colonial and dominion troops, uh, well over a, a million. Um, and this took a real pounding. Uh, this, this obviously had a huge personal and um, emotional cost, um, but also um, an economic cost as well. These were uh, skilled men from all aspects of society. Britain's industri industries had been forced to switch to war production um, and instead of supplying export markets, and lots of those export markets were um, lost and never fully recaptured. Britain had been cut off from its most valuable markets by German U-boats, and 40% of British merchant shipping had been sunk. Um, the 1914 uh, exports accounted for a third of Britain's total wealth, and by 1918 that had declined to a fifth. 
1918, the level of imports was the same as it was in 1914, but decline, the decline in exports meant that the country had a negative balance of payments, i.e. there was a net outflow of cash from the country, uh, not one uh, pouring in. So Britain is not only a debtor nation, but ceases to be a surplus nation. Um, if you look back at the podcast I did on the end of the Bretton Woods system, um, the talk, I talk there in depth about the difference between um, surplus and deficit nations. Uh, but what it really means is that um, in terms of balance of payments, the amount of imports versus exports, imports exceed exports. And the debt that Britain had accrued made Britain economically very vulnerable, and as we shall later see um, in 1931, politically very vulnerable as well. The debts were 136% of the country's entire annual economic output in 1919, and the damage to trade um, left Britain greatly weakened. By 1920, the total British debt was £8 billion, and in that year, the government's annual budget came to £800 million, but £300 million went directly on debt repayment. In 1908, the standard rate of income tax had been one shilling in the pound, or 5%. But had risen to five shillings or twenty five percent by nineteen twenty four and much of this increase was necessary to pay, repay the nation's debts so the costs of the great war uh, go on and on and on into peacetime there is in nineteen nineteen to nineteen twenty a brief consumer boom, but this does the British almost more harm than good. Um, there is a, uh, a surge in demand for consumer goods which have been rationed during the war. Uh, cigarettes and soaps and chocolate and that sort of thing. Um, and this was evidence in the eyes of some, in the eyes of a, an over-optimistic coalition uh, government, that um, the worst of uh, the uh, feared um, post-war slump had been avoided and that the country would now bounce back into prosperity having won the war um, and having been um, able to avoid the uh, mass destruction uh, in France and Belgium. Uh, Britain obviously uh, was largely physically unscarred by the war. So during the war, individuals and um, businesses had been unable to spend cash and accumulated it in savings and bonds. Um, in 1919, consumers and businesses spent their savings. Individuals, as, as I mentioned before, brought luxury items. Um, and there was a, a, also a huge speculative boom. Because it seemed that the economy was picking up and thriving, um, there was a, a, a dash to acquire uh, businesses um, and uh, to invest in um, things like shipping lines, um, coal mines, steel mills, cotton mills, the kind of heavy industry which had long since lost its comparative advantage. The, what there wasn't was um, a wide-scale investment in the kinds of new industries which were developing uh, on the, um, at, at, the after, at the end of the war. Um, if you read uh, Dermot Jeffrey's fascinating book, uh, Hell's Cartel, all about IG Farben. Um, the thing that comes across throughout that is throughout the, the 1890s all the way through to the 1920s and 30s is that new industries such as the chemical industry in Germany are constantly um, considered 
a higher priority. I mean, Britain has companies like ICI, for example, um, but the the uh, German chemical industry, uh, which was closely related to ICI, has a uh, is far more um, significant and, and protected and invested in. Um, Britain really looks in the 1920s, the early 1920s, looks to the past to um, deal with the uh, the economic problems of the present, and particularly investors look to um, industries which are already on the wane and have been dealt uh, a serious hammer blow by the war. So during this speculative boom, businesses issued new shares for traders, investors and other businesses to buy. And more money poured into the London Stock Exchange market um, than at any other time previously in British history. The total amount of new shares issued uh, dramatically increased from £65 million in 1918 to £384 million in 1920. Um, and, as I said, it was shipyards, cotton mills and coal mines, um, all poor investment choices, which were the, um, main, um, the, the main items for sale and the ones that seemed to be, in the eyes of investors, the easiest wins. Um, the reason why these things become poor investments is that the monopoly that Britain had had over these industries had vanished during the war. Britain had new competitors in America, Japan and South America as well. In addition to this, these industries had become outdated and had received little investment throughout the wars, making them uncompetitive. In the case of shipping, there was an assumption by investors that global trade would quickly resume. But not only does it not resume, but by 1919 there is a global surplus of shipping. So um, when supply exceeds demand, values and prices drop significantly. So Britain's wartime industries, still in the process of returning to civilian use, couldn't keep up with the level of demand. Goods in short supply became excessively expensive and as a result demand declined and the boom came to an end. Now it's important to talk a little bit about some of the political context um, of this period in time. Um, it, since December 1916, uh, Lloyd George had made sure that the um, trade union movement um, had always appeared somewhere in the war cabinet to really bring the Labour Party, which was um, still, uh, in his eyes, not a challenge but a potential threat, to um, the uh, the Liberals and Lloyd George's uh, wartime coalition, and possibly a, a serious electoral threat um, after the war in, in, in 1918, he thought that, you, that the pro-war faction of the Labour Party could be co-opted for Lloyd George's war aims. Ramsay MacDonald, who'd emerged as the leader of the party, uh, the, the first Labour Prime Minister, um, Ramsay MacDonald was uh, anti-war uh, in 1914, and the he was faced with serious challenges from within the party, the Labour pro-war um, shadow minister, Arthur Henderson. Um, but even Henderson eventually uh, abandons Lloyd George. Um, the Representation of the People Act uh, in early 1918, before the war had ended, uh, seemed to almost guarantee um, a uh, a labour um, a, a labour landslide in the not too distant future by granting the working classes 
forty um, percent of whom would have been um, without the vote in nineteen fourteen by granting uh, a mass universal suffrage um, for working class men and uh, you nearly universal suffrage for women. Um, the and dramatically extending the franchise, logic would have dictated that there be a uh, a labour landslide, but there isn't. Um, the um, fact that it takes till nineteen twenty four to get a minority labour government, and then nineteen twenty nine to get a second minority labour government, and nineteen forty five to result in a labour landslide, really tells you an awful lot about the um the uh, about politics in Great Britain in the early 20th century, that the working class voters, um, those who were Labour voters, weren't able to uh, secure these kinds of um, titanic political victories. And a large number of working class voters were the kinds of blue, uh, blue working class um, um, uh, blue working class voters or, uh, or a Tory working class if you will something Karl Marx never really quite predicted the reality as well was that a large number of newly enfranchised uh, women voters who um, uh, voted Conservative as they saw it as a family of balanced budgets and family values um, who represented um security and aspiration and all these sorts of things um, working class culture union culture and uh, labor um, uh, labor club culture was seen as kind of rather crudely masculine whether it was or it wasn't is, is rather beside the point anyway as you can see in this time of economic crisis there is no working class uh, socialist political breakthrough um, something that is uh, go flies in the face of uh, conventional wisdom, really, and uh, flies in the face of um, how the the assumptions we have about economic crisis and political activism. Britain's first general election in nineteen eighteen. Um, is hardly uh, remembered or wasn't really thought of at the time as a kind of a key moment in um, uh, the expansion of um, democratic functioning. As Adam Tews puts it, um, he became notorious as a triumph of jingoistic nationalism under the shadow cast by Woodrow Wilson um, at the Treaty uh, um, outside of the Treaty of Versailles. Um, the Paris Peace Conference, I beg your pardon. The khaki election, um, the, kind of the second khaki election, was the, the, the first was uh, following the Boer War, uh, was greeted by a barrage of criticism, not from the right, but from the left. Faced with the degradation of this parliament, Ramsay MacDonald, um, who had lost his seat, despaired altogether of human nature. The 1918 election saw massive gains for the Conservatives, um, Lloyd George still held together the national government, but it saw his Liberal Party electorally wiped out, and he, at the head of a government may, comprised mainly of Conservatives. And the Tories, for their part, were happy to have Lloyd George around because it helped to keep Labour at bay. So when the recession begins in 1920... Um, it was one of the most significant slumps experienced by Britain before 1929. There had been a, a long recession. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Um, up, to, uh, up to the 1890s, from the 1870s to the 1890s. But this was um, far more, far deeper and far more um, uh, acutely felt. Unemployment levels increased to 12% of the working adult population. By 1921, 2 million workers were unemployed in areas of the country, such as Wales and Tyneside, were uh, deeply depressed. Again, these are the centres of coal and shipbuilding. And the crisis in the coal industry led to a wave of strike action which was exacerbated by the industrial relations that had been developed during the First World War. So during the First World War, Lloyd George had negotiated with the unions to keep strikes to a minimum, as, wartime, as the wartime economy couldn't afford to be disrupted by, um, the, uh, by industrial action. Um, though, even though he, he tried to do this, the number of wartime strikes was significant, uh, there were 48 strikes across Britain in 1917 that involved over 200,000 workers, and by 1918, the relationship with the government had deteriorated even further. Uh, in 1918, following the armistice, uh, there was an enormous wave of unrest across the country. Uh, not only workers, but soldiers and even the police went on strike as resentments and perceived injustices that had developed during the war were unleashed at the end of the conflict. Um, factories took on huge numbers of men and the numbers of strikes declined. Uh, so this was during this, this brief boom period. New jobs, many of which were well paid, satisfied unionised British workers. In 1919, there were 32 million days lost to strikes. But the following year, at the height of the boom, uh, the figures had fallen to 25 million. A year later, as unemployment soared and the workers who were in jobs saw their wages slump, strikes grew once more reaching 84 million days lost in 1921. 
So many of these grievances were um, based around repressed wages, rising prices, food shortages, and um, but the minority of strikers expressed more explicit ideological grievances. Um, the government uh, was able to contain the strikes by offering concessions, but this shows this sh suggests that while the perception may have existed that Britain was close to a revolution, in reality um, there was not much chance of one actually occurring. In 1919, the centre of union unrest in Britain was Clyde's side in Glasgow. The Clyde workers had been involved in protesting against the First World War in 1914, and a May Day protest in 1918 calling for the end of the war attracted tens of thousands of workers. In response to growing unemployment in the depressed former shipbuilding industry, the Glasgow Trades Council proposed to reduce the working week from 54 hours to 40. This was intended to give surplus hours to unemployed men, you know, of, of the hours that they are, spread them around a bit, uh, a bit wider, and many of whom were ex-servicemen. Um, it meant that everyone would get some work, and um, the people with work would get slightly less of it. Matters came to a head on the 31st of January 1919, when 90,000 demonstrated filled George Square, demanding a 40-hour week, and raising the socialist red flag. At a time when governments across the Western world were very nervous about the possibility of revolution breaking out, though, in his book, The Deluge, Adam II suggests that, um, the, uh, that, that this was um, only a reality for a very short period of time. Um, the raising of the red flag was a very kind of incendiary act. Churchill had led a, a, a veritable crusade into Russia to crush communism before it began. Um, it's unclear if the police acted first, but by the end of the day, pitched battles had taken place between protesters and police, with tanks and soldiers being quickly transported to Glasgow from England and other parts of Scotland in order to put down any organised revolutionary violence. So tanks were placed on the streets of Glasgow, um, fully armed, and ready to fire um, in a, a, a manner um, that would be repeated later in the year at the Amritsar massacre uh, on the other side of the British Empire. Uh, the scale of the violence and the potential for greater bloodshed from the army shocked union leaders who called on protesters to halt the rioting, and the 40-hour week was never obtained uh, by the workers. But this was not the beginning or the end of, um, the, of union unrest in, in this period. By 1921, it's the turn of the miners to strike, and the Miners' Federation of Great Britain was the largest um, union in the country with over 900,000 members. Wartime government control of the coal mines had been popular with the miners who looked on the pit owners as lazy, greedy and incompetent. Um, the, uh, one of the great issues for um, the, the miners um, in, uh, in encouraging them to embrace nationalisation eventually was the fear of um, pit disasters, pit accidents, and the idea that if the state was running things, at least they wouldn't die in quite so, so many hideous, uh, hideous accidents. Once the government's control of the mines ended in March 1921 and they were returned to private industry, wages were cut and hours were lengthened in order to compete with foreign coal imports. The high levels of unemployment in 1921 enabled mine owners to reduce wages, knowing that miners did not have any of the work to go to if they left their existing jobs. So they simply were refer, uh, relying in the most cruel way on the laws of supply and demand. Um, the Miners' Federation of Great Britain, the National Transport Workers' Federation, and the National Union of Railwaymen had discussed the possibility of united strike action to protect wages if a possible, if a post-war economic slump had occurred. So the triumvirate of railway, 
um, transport workers, so dock workers basically, and coal um, believed that it was possible to bring the country to a standstill. A miners' strike could easily be broken by the importing of foreign coal, but if dock workers refused to unload it and rail workers refused to move it across the country and strike it could be potentially crippling and might quickly become a general strike. When union leaders refused to accept pay cuts, mine owners locked out their workers on the 1st of April and the government used the Emergency Powers Act to send troops to South Wales in anticipation of unrest and violence. The miners' attempts to strike in 1921 were sabotaged by two uh, by other branches of the Triple Alliance abandoning their cause, so the um, NUR and the NTWF, um, and this was referred in this infamous date in British Labour history referred to as Black Friday. Uh, the NUR and the NTWF both decided not to go out and strike in solidarity with the miners. The miners' leaders had made a crucial error in asking for their for their support. Uh, but refusing to allow them to be part of the negotiations. So it wasn't really that the railwaymen and the dock workers were doing it out of spite. They didn't. They knew that they weren't part, going to be party to the negotiations, and they they saw the miners' leadership as arrogant, um, and the uh, and, and they thought they would be dragged into deals which would be detrimental to their members without knowing about them. So, obviously, this made members reluctant to strike, and union leaders wary of the potential consequences of involving their members. The miners went on strike between the 15th and the 28th of April, but were eventually forced to end the walkout, realising that they could not beat the mine owners alone. They were forced to accept pay cuts that left their wages 20% lower than in 1914. And the, it was Black Friday that left the miners with a lasting sense of grievance towards the rest of the union movement, and I hope that the election of a Labour government might change their fortunes. But, um, but with the fall of the first Labour government in 1924, without achieving any of its core goals, um, and the union militancy once, became, once again became the primary means of, being, of bringing about change. And it would be this militancy that would lead to Britain's 1926 general strike. But um, we're kind of getting beyond the scope of ourselves uh, if we go there. So we'll do that another time. So the... Just to cap off with the, the recession itself, the, uh, the government cut spending by 75% between 1918 and 1920. Um, obviously, they would, it would, most of this is accounted for by the end of wartime spending. In addition, in order to return to the value of the pound to pre-war levels, the Bank of England raised the interest rate to 7%. If you whack up the interest rates, then you whack up the, uh, the value um, that can be accrued to lenders um, who will pour them, pour their savings into British bank accounts um, and buy pounds in order to do so, thus making the pound more attractive, and away you go. But it means that the cost of borrowing is sky high. Um, these two factors drained available money from spending from the economy. Both the bank and the government took these measures to try to repay Britain's wartime debts. But at the end of the decade, by the end of the 1920s, Debt had risen from 120% GDP to 160%. And between um, Britain, Germany and France, um, one of the causes of continued uh, international instability is the failure to be able to uh, reconcile uh, debts on, on the international scene, particularly with the USA. Again, as I mentioned previously, the loss of global export trade had um, uh, really, really hit Britain. 
So textiles, for example, um, was one significant area where Japan began to supply India and Southeast Asia with cotton and silk during the First World War, causing the textile industry in the northwest of England to decline. Um, lack of investment. Britain had, this was not a thing related only to the First World War. Um, this had been a, a, a problem um, that had continued, uh, that had been going on since the 1890s. Um, not only do you have problems of union militancy, but you have problems of fairly feeble uh, gentleman capitalism um, at the same time. Britain, British industry suffered from long-term underinvestment, and by the 1920s this had been uh, began to cause serious problems. In the steel industry, output throughout the interwar period was lower than Britain's, that of Britain's rivals. By 1920, a growing number of British manufacturers were importing American steel because it was better and cheaper. By 1937, British steel foundries were producing 83,000 tonnes of steel a year, but American foundries were producing 210,000 tonnes, and Germany was producing 125,000. Um, as I said, there, was, um, there were poor industrial relations, um, but it was in many ways that the attempts to solve the problems that made matters even worse. Lloyd George thought there was little choice to, um, but to wait for the economy to improve on its own. He, this is a kind of classic economic liberal thinking. Hands off and let the business cycles do, do their magic. Um, he was anxious to appease middle class voters who were experiencing financial hardship after 1920, many of whom wanted to see tax cuts and less government spending. He advocated a policy of spending cuts known as retrenchment. So in 1921, he appointed Sir Eric Geddes um, to implement greater cuts in public expenditure. High taxes were blamed on high spending, and Lloyd George hoped tax cuts would stimulate the economy. Geddes recommended £87 million of tax cuts in the 1922-23 budget, and most of these came from government, the government military budget, but health, welfare and housing budgets were reduced from 205 million in 1920 to 21 to 182 million in the years 1922 to 23. Um, classic austerity as we understand it, um, with similar results basically in terms of the alleviation of poverty and the reflation of the economy. But one of the great recurring battlegrounds of the era, which would not be resolved until the next depression, was that of tariffs and free trade. One of the most important economic questions of the interwar years was that of tariffs. Do we create a tariff barrier around the British Empire in order to protect it? And for most of the previous century, Britain had adopted free trade, and the depth of the post-war recession meant that many members of the government began to consider introducing tariffs in order to protect British industry and prevent further increases in unemployment. But tariffs inevitably put up food prices. Lloyd George had always believed in free trade and opposed tariffs. When he left office in 1922, some conservative in some in the Conservative Party sought an election victory that would give them the mandate to impose tariffs on imports and protect industry. And this divided the party and led to the establishment of the first Labour government. Okay, so that's quite a comprehensive tour through the uh, the period. Um, and we'll, we'll try to continue this one as well um, in, in the near future. Uh, if you want to read more about this, you can read uh, Democracies in Change, Britain and the USA in the 20th Century, written by myself, Robin Bunce, Peter Clements and Vivian Sanders. Um, I probably um, um, a bargain at, I don't know how much it is, but um, uh, a, a, a great read if ever there were. 
So please make sure, if you can, that you give us a good review. Uh, it's those kinds of reviews that make all the difference to this podcast. Um, we're going to hit you up with uh, another uh, review podcast um, later on today. Um, and we'll be looking at the, uh, the history, the secret history of the Winchester rifle. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.